Welcome to the Monsters and Treasure Podcast, where we talk way too long about a subject but only give you the best parts. I'm K.R. King of D&D Homebrew, here as always with Daniel Norton of Bandit's Keep, and today's a special episode in which we respond to calls from our listeners. Always like to hear it when they call in, so let's get to the first one. Hey guys, Jason here. Enjoyed your call-in episode. As far as, I don't really know what an elder tonight is, but hearing you talk about that compared to a paladin would be interesting. Definitely interested in that. And I guess I should recant my statement a little bit. I made a statement in one of those calls, something to the fact that I don't play in games like high fantasy games like Pathfinder and the newer versions of D&D. I am in a Pathfinder 1E game, Wrath of the Righteous, but I don't really, I'm just there for a social thing, really, for optimization. But, I mean, I'm having a lot of fun with it because, you know, it's a cool bunch of people. So, anyhow, I want to clarify that and let you know that I hope you do talk about that and talk about the other episodes you were discussing during the call-in episode. All those sound like great ideas, and I look forward to them. Take care of yourselves. Keep up the great work. I'll talk to you. All right, so that was Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast uh, starting us off, and uh, we are way behind on the call-ins <laughs> since he's recalling it from the last call-in episode, but... Um, yeah, I don't think we ever we haven't quite we haven't talked about Eldritch Knight versus Paladin, so maybe we will do that as an episode. But uh, yeah, as far as I know, I correspond with Jason all the time. He is in the Pathfinder uh, campaign run by Joe Richter of Hindsightless Podcast, and it sounds pretty awesome actually. If you guys aren't listening to Hindsightless, uh, Joe talks about the campaign all the time. Sounds really cool. What's your experience there with the Pathfinder? Uh, well, of course, I played three point five for for a long time, which is Pathfinder one e. It sounds like that's what he said. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved playing those uh, three five as a player, as a GM. It was very difficult for me, the prep work. And I've looked at Reddit boards with people who talk about that too, because I played a whole home root campaign and people said the prep work was just insane. Um, but, and then in terms of, um, uh, and then Pathfinder 2E has changed things around quite a bit. Uh, I've just begun playing that in this campaign. It's got, some really great improvements. And then it's got the same old, same old of those later systems. If if you don't like those, you're not going to like that. You know, it's got <laughs> the, that ethos behind it. It's interesting because the Eldritch Knight, of course, when you think of that in terms of it's uh, a fighter that has magic spells, right? A magic user spell. Are those clerical spells? I believe they're uh, not. They're magic. They are spells. wizards. Yeah. I think they're wizard spells. So it's yeah. not quite like a paladin if we think traditionally. Yeah, I wonder if what we said, because it was so long ago, was that, this sounds like something I would say, <laughs> was that uh, I feel like a paladin should be lawful, because this is one of my things, lawful good, and if you were going to be something that wasn't a lawful good paladin, then you should just be an Eldritch Knight. That's probably what I said. Uh, I, I don't know, but uh, that's what I'm saying now, and that's probably it. And maybe we'll just talk about the differences in, like, uh, magic-using fighters. Could be interesting. So anyways, we have a bunch of calls from Jason, but I do have one from BJ here, so let's listen to what BJ's got to say. Hey guys, it's BJ from the Arcane Alienist. Uh, just want to follow up on your, your discussion a couple episodes ago about clerics and paladins who don't serve a deity. Part of the idea of them serving a concept is to allow you the opportunity to get out of sort of a, a Western mindset on religion and allow for the possibility of religious and spiritual traditions in the game that don't have deities like you might find in some of the more Eastern religions. So that you can still have someone who fills that archetype of a, a healer or a holy man or a holy warrior without being bound into sort of a, a Western-centric view of religion and spirituality. So I think that's where those ideas come from. I can't remember. I, I'm vaguely remembering that that may have been even around 
at some point in AD&D, maybe during second edition or not, but I know it was clearly kind of there by third edition. So I'm really enjoying the uh, the podcast, so I'm looking forward to the next episode. All right, so that was BJ from the Arcane Alias podcast. Uh, yeah, very cool. Thanks, BJ. You know, that's super interesting. Again, we sort of all old because we were talking about this. Uh, I, I wonder, though, you know, I, I, I get where he's coming from, but... But I feel like when I see people talking about it, they're playing the paladin in the traditional, what I'd call Western religion paladin, Holy Knight. They just don't have a god. I mean, that that's, I think, what we're talking about. Like, they're just like, no, I serve nature. But then they treat it exactly like a, uh, a paladin of whatever, you know, Christian or whatever it would do. I think it would be really cool to play a character that uh, from some other, you know, uh, culture that, you know, I'm not familiar with. Uh, or, you know, I wouldn't play something I wasn't familiar with. I'd have to look it up. That would be really interesting, and I could totally see that being viable. Like, uh, what do you think about that? I think, you know, I think your point is well taken about what the, the original vision of a uh, a paladin as a holy warrior. We, we That's where we, we have all our tropes and everything. And a couple things there, uh, you know, I have, if you play like an Eastern, let's, let's see, again, you, you have to be careful because I don't really understand Eastern religions, but sort of the idea, let's, let's take it to another level, the Star Wars I serve the force, right? The force holds all things together. And so the Jedi are sort of like, they don't have healing spells in that movie, but maybe they do. I I can't remember, but, but in a D and D setting that a Jedi knight would be the the force knight would have healing spells or whatever. And then be a warrior as well. So that'd be a classic non, you know, there's no, there's no personal deity. Hmm. Of course, the other thing about paladins is, you know, they're like the Knights Templar, uh, the Crusaders, there's a little bit of, uh, there's this, you know, stereotype there that has its offensive side too, in terms of shield of the faith. You know, they were trying to warriors of Christianity and whatnot. Again, we don't have that in mm-hmm. D we have gods, but so that the neutral that you're, I'm not trying to promote my religion nor my God over others. And it's easy, you know, you know, when you're just playing D and D and what's lawful good, my God is lawful good, of course. And, and they really are. But of course, think of how many wars have started over religion, right? Right. Uh, everybody thinks their God is lawful good, right? So <laughs> there is that, a thing yeah. about, about having a God that is uh, not personal, does not have a, uh, an agenda per se, like you said, with nature or whatnot, that at least takes that away. But I always still think of the paladin as a traditional, you know, they're, they're servants of their God. It's just because I grew up with that. Yeah, 100%. And what I think is interesting about that is I guess that comes from, well, possibly Dragon Magazine articles and stuff, but AD&D specifically, because the paladin uh, in OD&D, as it's stated in Greyhawk, is just says that they have to be, they, that they're lawful, like that they serve a law. Because in OD&D, of course, there's no pantheon of gods until they come out with the later books, right? So if you're looking at when the paladin was first created, you know, I think there was an implication that the side of law was like Christianity, basically, because being the, knowing who wrote the games, right? But at the same time, you don't have to do that. So I suppose I may have said that they, they need to serve a God back in the day, but I mean, thinking of all this, I, I 100% would say, yeah, that makes sense. Like, why wouldn't a paladin? Uh, but I still think the idea of a paladin being a protector is more of a lawful concept in the, in the sense that I see lawful. Like, I feel like a chaotic paladin would be more of a destroyer than a protector. And I think a paladin as protector. Yeah, and in the, you know, I've been looking at the rule cyclopedia. The paladin is lawful. Uh, mm-hmm. The uh, knight is uh, neutral. And the avenger is chaotic. So, <laughs> and 
avenging some slight. I don't know, because sometimes I think of a paladin as being an avenger, too, if they see something wrong. I mean, this was why paladins were always, way back when, kind of a pain to run with, because Mm -hmm. they were... uh, Dudley do right, you know they 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 always had to do the right thing, and we tend to, and that's what if people played, they would you get people. First of all, it's hard to roll a paladin, right? Mm-hmm. So you roll one at seventeen charisma, and you're like, oh, I get to be you know the the knight in shining armor, and depending on the playing style, it just could be disruptive, you know. So, but yeah, it was also fun because a lot of times we were playing lawful good characters, you know. So mm-hmm. it just. You, but you wanted to have someone that was a little more sophisticated to play the paladin. Yeah. I well, I think it's really interesting, and I and I've heard that before too. Maybe from you, but uh, where like you, you know you have to have the right player to play certain kinds of characters. Bards. I think it was Rob over down. He was talking about the idea that he doesn't like bards, and that but if like just the right player played them, it would be fine. But most people who play bards aren't the right player in his opinion. I don't want to put words in Rob's mouth, but uh, he definitely has a, a feelings towards bards. Let's just say that. <laughs> Well, I, me, it's like warlocks. Me, I know you. <laughs> I know you used to like to play warlocks, and mm-hmm. I think warlock can be a really good play, uh, character in the right hands. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it sort of turns into eldritch blast, eldritch blast, or just yeah. you know, it's that it's was a, me. Yeah. I was a terrible warlock. <laughs> I, I totally power built that warlock, and I got to tell you that I think personally, it's a, this might be an, an interesting. Uh, I mean, it's connected to what we're talking about here, but it might be an interesting uh, side note. Is that I think. Being able to play a warlock well has more to do with the GM or DM, as it would be, than the player. In so much as that, if the patron doesn't make the warlock do stuff, the warlock is just another magic user. Oh, exactly. I mean, this is the yeah. thing that. Uh, so I have this warlock in my game right now, and he has this mysterious fey god, and so I already impelled him, giving him dream information. You know, again, a lot of people hate yeah. that, but it's a god that's connected to you in your mind. So how would these visions come? They have a whole. Yeah. 5,000 year history of things coming that way. It's impelling him. It's an, so you got to pay for that. You got to, you got to pay the freight on stuff. Yeah, and just no, like magic users have to collect spells, uh, you know, everybody in the, in a game. So the idea that, that I'm just, uh, I mean, that's some of the thing, the wild magic on the sorcerers too, where uh, this is one of the things I like about the DCC, you know, spell failure thing is that mm-hmm. there's risks involved. There's risks in making your patron irritated as a world oh, yeah. or, not following their instructions. Right. Or as a paladin. Yes. To, <laughs> to put a button on that one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, guys. Jason here. Just listened to your Voices episode and Miniatures episode. Trying to catch up. A couple thoughts here. Voices, I pretty much totally agree with you. If it's done well and right, or not right, but, you know, if, it, if somebody does it well, it can add to the game. But it definitely done poorly isn't great and people shouldn't have to do it. I'm not great at voices, so I tend not to inflict them on my players. Although I do think Westerns, we do tend to slip into them in Westerns, right? And that's one of the reasons Western games are so fun. Um, As far as miniatures, man, I'm with Daniel. Minis for moving through tunnels or general exploration, I hate it. We never did it in person and I hate doing it online. I hate online games or it's the VTT and you're moving one at a time through there, or if there's not a solid turn order where you wait for your turn, you know, one person's halfway across the map with the lantern or the torch, and now you're sitting there in darkness because you didn't move your miniature fast enough to keep up with the party, and I hate that. If you're going to use miniatures for exploration in virtual tabletops, then stick in strict turn order, and 
even then it's a pain in the butt. Don't do it. Have one miniature for the whole party maybe, but not everybody moving their individual miniatures. That's just, it turns into a board game, an online board game. As far as moving around during battle, I'm in a Pathfinder 1E game and I'm playing a monk and because he's, you know, very dexterous because he has a higher acrobatics, agility, he can dodge attacks of opportunities. So he moves all around the battlefield to get up to who he wants to grapple with. And so we do move around quite a bit during our battles. I, I agree with Daniel that in some degree, smaller battles are more important to know where everybody is than bigger ones. Um, although it depends if you have choke points, things like that, but you can describe that theater of the mind. Um, also, you, you do want to have situations in older versions of D&D where the enemy outnumbers you, especially if they're a low level of enemy, because, of course, fighters get those bonus attacks against one hit die and less monsters, and you don't want to nerf the fighter by not letting them use that special ability. As far as over, overwhelming and, like, the goblins all overwhelming a knight, yeah, AD&D, hand-to-hand, you, you know, the overwhelming rules and the unarmed rules do allow for all that. But... I guess one thing I'll push back a little bit here when we talk about measuring, two things, I guess. Measuring, you, you know, the thing about me- some war games and skirmish games you're allowed to measure, some you're specifically not allowed to pre-measure, but in the end, I don't know, I, I think it's just you pick for your table, and, you know, Savage Worlds handles this in an interesting way. In Savage Worlds, when you run, you roll D d6 to see how far you get to add to your movement. So you can measure, see it's, well, he's, it's four inches further or four spaces further or whatever it is, you know, four units further. Well, I can roll, D, you know, if I run, I have a chance of getting it, but I might not reach it. So it's, it still keeps that uncertainty, which is kind of neat. Honestly, though, I don't think a miniature shows exactly where you are. Um, you, you know, we, during the talk, it seemed like, well, the miniature, you're right here. But because these space, these squares are you know, in a grid or so big, really, you don't know where are you, like you said, are you hugging the wall? Or are you not hugging the wall? I think zones make more sense. Like the Marvel superheroes uses zones, TSR's Marvel superheroes. And I, I like that better. I, I like the idea of miniatures and showing where things are. I, I don't know that the, the problem is they give you a false sense of where people are because you're still moving around a battle. You're, you're spinning around fighting, doing all this. You're not, feet planted exactly where your miniature is, and especially not when you're talking AD&D where they're minute-long turns, or combat turns, right? Combat rounds, whatever. So, anyway, I've rambled on long enough. Great, great stuff, and I look forward to your next one. Well, clearly, uh, I was right. Well, and clearly, he did not listen to the podcast, because (laughs) I just think of my old players who would have said, running miniatures in a hallway? Whoever did that? I think that when I he's, well, well, I did it. And that's, I think he's oh, referring okay. back to me saying that when I first tried to use miniatures, I did that. And it was really tedious, which is what turned me off from miniatures. Oh, I see. I never, I never said I ever did that. I mean, nobody I knew ever did. Well, let me just finish the thought. But okay. people do do it on virtual tabletops. And that is something I think is interesting to discuss. But go ahead. What are you going to say? Well, when, when, I'm, when, it, when I first started playing the virtual tabletop and he did the thing with it... Um, that I talked about, which was, or, you know, the one person moving forward. And I said, whoa, 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 we're all moving as a group. Why, why is one person moving forward? And everyone just kind of went, oh, well, that's how we do it. And that's was in Fantasy Grounds. And I'm like, well, this doesn't make any sense. Nobody would walk through the dungeon and send somebody out ahead. We should all go as a group. And like in Owlbear Rodeo, when I was showing my example, I was like, I would say we would never, 
in a tabletop at live, but if, if since we're showing this on Owlbear, they have a thing you can lasso everybody and just move ahead as a group, right? That's you would never you have battle formation. And then once something happened, then you could decide who wants to move where, and that's where miniatures came in handy. So, yeah, you know, again, there was always just, uh, and and when we were drawing the map, we were just talking about, then we had a, you know, way back when we had sheets, uh, graph paper, and we would put a piece of plastic, like a plastic cover that you'd have, you know, like for offices, and we'd draw with grease pencil on to make a, a a room and we'd have all the objects in the room. So that's how we did it before there were the grease. Now they have the grease pencil maps that we use, but so it was all based on, you had to be in a situation to just what he's talking about, where now I need to know where, where are you? Where exactly are you? Here is your movement rates, whatever, because what right. we found, and I found this with people that I knew that played theater of the mind is, the movement rates didn't matter. You'd tell them how big a thing was and you'd sort of estimate, but you, you know, the idea that you were, that you were moving these distances or whatever was very vague, right? It was always very, and it was mm -hmm. fun and you, who cares? It's just a game, but well, it had no tactical sense of here are the movement rates they prescribed. Here's the monster rates, right? Because if you said that monster's on you now, the GM or the DM and is the monster on me now? What if what if the monster couldn't quite get to me? When you had a when you had miniatures, you knew that exactly. Whereas at a theater of the mind, if the GM says he's on you, you have no you have no you know, you just go, oh, okay, he's on me, and you just deal with that. Whereas in a miniature setting, there they are. That's how far the monster is. And so it's both, as he was saying, it can be limiting because and we also always use five foot hexes. We never use the 10 for what he's saying. It's too big of an area for miniatures because Things are are things in your hex. What part of the hex are they in? All that kind of stuff. Well, so well, I think I think too though, ahead. right? Um, a couple things. I think you need to play more theater of the mind. <laughs> a joke, but yeah. It, first of all, that comes down to the the you know the goblins are in front of you twenty feet. Roll initiative. Okay, they catch up to you because you know how far a goblin moves. And movement becomes super important. I use movement all the time in theater of the mind. I know how fast people move. I know about fighting retreats. You also have to keep in mind that. It depended on the system you're playing, right? You're playing 5e, Pathfinder, some of the, I don't know when it started, maybe third edition with opportunity attacks and stuff like that. That's super important, right? But when you're playing AD&D, like he's talking about with one minute rounds and the the ability of no opportunity attacks and to be able to move your, your combat movement during combat without any kind of an issue, you kind of are estimating where everybody is anyways. In fact, in AD&D, to go back to that, which I don't play, but I know you don't even in a big melee, you don't even pick who you attack because the idea is you're if you think about one of these big battle schemes where everybody's just coming from left and right, and you're just attacking whoever you are. So it cha it's a change of the way we think about combat, the way that when you're using miniatures, the way you're describing it or when I use miniatures, it becomes more like a pair combat. Like here we are dueling against this one character or two characters or whatever. When you do it there to the mind for bigger combats, which is what why I agree with Jason, like if there's 20 orcs in the room. And there's five player characters. I'm not worried about exactly who's where. It's a big melee. People are moving around. It doesn't actually matter until it does. And if it does, then we figure it out. And I don't think it's really necessary to use miniatures for that. And, and I've not found it necessary, I guess, in my in my experience. Well, I, I, I guess I'm finding that is uh, a very specific. I wasn't thinking about some giant thing. Well, he, that's what he said. He said, he said, he said, yeah, he said big combats. Yeah. Yeah, he said. Is he that said what he was specifically combat. referring to? I didn't. Well, that's that when he all. said that he thought theater of mind was better for for bigger combats. Yeah, that's what he said. Oh, yeah. well, I mean, then it becomes uh, a thing. I mean, certainly you can run that 
mm-hmm. uh, with a miniature thing. Again, I have run in theater of the mind things, and I ran from the very beginnings of D and D that were that were mm-hmm. fun and fine. The issue always was that we came at it from this wargaming standpoint, right? We yeah. wanted to see what we were looking at. We wanted to say, where are we in space? Right. And it just came from that. And in fact, I've been looking at this old Dragon Quest uh, rules, SPI. <laughs> Battle rules are really complicated. And because SPI did a strategy and tactics magazine, the, the simulation production. And right. it was really interesting to realize that that was going to be a dead end. That was not the way the game was going because that was for adults, wargamer, nerdy guys, or whatever you want to right. call it. And the game was going to 12-year-olds, 15-year-olds, and they're not going to play that kind of a really advanced thing. And it's, and it's also, yeah, like I said, it's, just, it's a different way of looking at it that in yeah. the end, as you're saying, runs into all this technical, like, where am I really in space? And are the rules... Um, specific enough when they get to that specificity which you see like in the spi system it becomes that and not the fantasy heroic fun thing that that we we sort of came to the table to play yeah and i think in the end which is probably what we said before which is usually where we end up with all things like everything works and everything is fun and and i think that it just depends on what you're doing you know you came from a wargaming background i would love to hear from more people that were wargamers then found dnd i have not played a war game until I played Chainmail, which was maybe two years ago. So I, I have no background in that. I completely came at miniatures from what I think is the wrong direction and got a bad taste in my mouth. Uh, I've been using them occasionally since. I use them when I do man-to-man in uh, Chainmail because I think, again, that smaller skirmish, I think it works better for. But I don't use it because I want to know exactly where people are standing, per se. I'm more thinking about, like, distances. I mean, I'm, I'm more thinking about, like, doubling up rear attacks, you know, grouping up on people, how many people can surround somebody. That's the only reason why I care about the miniatures. Uh, but again, I've busted them out so many times, and we almost never use them. But it comes down to the players, right? The players, uh, how they are used to playing and what they're comfortable with and the GM. Right. And it's interesting that um, 5e... People say, because I think 3E and 4E were miniatures constant. And, of course, we ran them every edition. But then 5E, to me, you can run 5E if you want. Uh, people do theater of the mind. and People do oh, that. Because a lot of people have no interest in those. They don't want to buy them. They don't want to know anything about them. And, it's, and yet the campaigns that I've run in 5E have been with miniatures. And then the online experience is, as Jason said, and, and I saw this too, has totally distorted to me the the usage of miniatures because it's like a video game where you've got figures that represent right. you on screen. And where are you exactly? And that becomes um, a tyranny of the miniature because um, it's a simulation on a screen and on a map. And uh, I, I, I'm always, I always know exactly, like, like using a darkness spell. Mm-hmm. Because a darkness spell you can't see, and yet you can see, right? So with a miniature thing, unless I guess you just put a black thing in there, but then how do I move my guy? Where am I? And am I? If you say, well, I'm just going to go forward, and I could as the GM. I mean, it might be an interesting experiment. Then you're moving the person, and they're bumping into walls or bumping into each other mm-hmm. and falling down. Are they going to fall prone? Because a darkness spell is really effective. Well, and so it has to be done. And go ahead. Let's talk about that because this is really interesting, and we'll make a whole podcast about this. So the way that I would do and do do exactly that, is when somebody is in a place where they can't see, I say, don't move your miniature. Then I say, where do you want to go? And I roll to see if they go in the right direction, right? And then I, just as a GM, know where they are. 
which is actually how you do it in war games, right? With invisible movement, right? You just have to, which yeah. is it's funny because a lot of this comes down to a lot of things we talk about, the miniatures especially, comes down to this weird area that well, I call it weird, but apparently it's more common that I think where people don't trust the GM. Like I feel like third edition D&D was all about creating a world where you didn't need to, the GM had almost no power. And I don't want to say power, like I want the power, but like, you, it, no, no, there's, there's nothing. You, you build, the monsters are built the way characters are built. We use miniatures because this is the way it is. We use this exact thing because we don't trust that the DM is going to be, I'm air quoting, is going to be fair. I think being fair is the key to any kind of theater of the mind is that you have to, as a GM, listen to what the players say and then adjudicate as you think is fair. And you have to also be open to the idea that if you're just like that fireball hits you and they go, well, no, it shouldn't hit me because I did this. You need to be able to, you know, adjudicate that in a fair way. And if they, if the party, if the table trusts you, they will take the result. If you get the player that's flipping the table over, that's just not the player to have at that table. Like it's just not the right way to play for that player and that GM, in my opinion. Well, what I found was um, for for me, three three point was the no restrictions uh, revolution. Where I, so I didn't know about trust. I saw everybody wanted no restrictions on their character. Why 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 should a dwarf not be a magic user? Or why should a this not be that. Why should so they wanted multi-classing, they wanted specialization, they wanted to be able to do well, whatever they wanted. If you restricted them, you I'm not that's that's not what I want to play, well, right? And, let, that, and that's let me clarify. all the way to fifth, especially, right? That, yeah, that let I, me clarify. I want to be able to do whatever I want to do, and you as the GM can't tell me what to do. Go yeah, ahead. what I mean by that, let me just clarify so we don't get tons of calls, people, uh, is that uh <laughs> when I say trust, I mean that there was a rule for everything as much as possible. So there was no, like, how does this work? It was the GM will decide. It was, this is how it works. And the player can show you that rule and be like, here it says on line three of the spell that this is exactly how it works. So that's how it works. And the GM would be like, okay, because that's what it says in the book, as opposed to something that's more vague, which is what I think you get in a lot of the more kind of light games and the OSR games that are coming out, some of them anyways, and in, in original Dungeons and Dragons, of course. Which, again, maybe was problematic for some tables. It was not for us, but it comes down to who you're playing with, I guess. But yeah, after 15 minutes had, of one phone call. <laughs> yeah, okay. As, as, um, and we didn't really cover... Uh, well, anyway, so I guess in summation, that's what I would say is that um, I like to use miniatures for combat situations mm -hmm. in a limited number of combatants. If there's hundreds of people, then no, you're not going to be able to use that. Although, as a GM, what I tended to do in those situations, you'd abstract a larger battle, and then the players would typically have some special thing they were going to do. I need you to go kill the leader, or break into the treasury and, you know, the magazine and blow it up, or something like that, that you mm -hmm. would do while the larger battle was occurring, so that it wasn't just some abstract, I have a hundred of these, and you have a hundred of those, we, who's got leadership? Okay, it's right. plus six roll, and then it's sort of the abstract battle. So... Um, but miniatures for me were always great in terms of those small encounters. Yeah, no, I, I don't, I don't disagree. I think there's a sweet spot, but basically for me, which is going to con contradict what you just said, a large battle like that, I would use miniatures. I would use like two minute, two millimeter or something. And I'd fight it in chain mail because again, the game I'm playing currently, it's the battles that are somewhere in the middle that I don't use them for, or I abstract it, or I even, I've even done what we used to do as little kids and just like take a piece of paper and just draw out the terrain and then like have people draw circles where the characters and arrows is where they go and stuff when we're doing big battles. Uh, because I think a battle with 
500 goblins I want to play out because I think that'd be really fun because I'm just getting into miniatures. It's the ones in the middle, the 20 orcs, the the 11 ogres. Those are the ones I don't use miniatures for. The ones I would use them for is much smaller stuff, like where each character is fighting one person or two people. And even then, I, I again, only when I'm using man-to-man combat because I don't think it really matters in my game. Otherwise. Right. And in mine, if I had, like, so my current game, which is a 5e game, if I had 11 ogres and I had five players, I, I would use miniatures for that. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. I mean, I don't, there's no reason not to, right? It's just, it's just 11 on five. It's not that, it's not that complicated. So, uh, but, yeah, back, you has, know, just it, about, it, but a hundred, then I would say, well, this is yeah. an abstraction. Well, yeah, in 5e for sure, because you don't have a war game built into it, right? So you'd have to do some kind of an abstract. Uh, they actually do have yes. the, the rules for hordes, which I used quite a bit when I ran high level 5e, because I thought that was, that was the only way to hurt, hurt anybody. <laughs> but anyways, that's a whole other, <laughs> that's a whole other conversation. Exactly. Hey guys, Jason here calling about your How Important is Progression episode. So for me, in a game like Traveler or a superhero game, I'm okay without progression because it's the social contacts and what's going on in the world, and that's what matters. Not so much getting having your superhero get stronger or develop a new superpower. So I'm okay with that. But for D&D and fantasy games and all that, I understand why you want progression. And even in a modern game, or in a superhero game, like you might game skills, your skills might improve. And I'd be okay with that. I'm okay with skills improving, even in like, you know, like Call of Cthulhu style, even for Traveler or for a superhero game. So there's that. As far as starting like at third level, I think that's okay. I don't think I would start any further than third level, to be honest, for all the reasons that you guys mentioned. The, I do have one other point, but I'll have to call you back because I'm out of time. So the other thing I want to mention is you talk about, you know, you get higher level and you want to fight higher monsters. And I understand that to some degree. But in a game like D&D, you can kind of nerf fighters if you're not letting them fight lower level monsters. Because in a lot of versions of older D&D, you have that ability. You can attack as many times. You can attack creatures one hit die or less as many times as you are level. So a fifth level fighter can attack five times against, you know, one hit die creatures or less. And if they never get to fight hordes of one, I think you need to, they need to have the option to use that ability as well and not just fight creatures that are the same hit die as them. Um, that's all. Talk to you later. Yeah. I think that I agree with the last part hundred percent. I think that, um, one of the things that I like to do is throw hordes of low-level monsters at high-level characters. I think that at a certain point, I end up, I've talked about it before, where I'll just narrate it out because they're so powerful. You know, I'll just let them say, you know, I'll be like, there's a band of 25 orcs charging your 8th level 5e party. How did you destroy these orcs? Like, that's just how I'll do it. And I'll just let the players have a minute to just explain it. Uh, unless it's an actual real, real threat, if you will. Uh, although, I guess what he's saying, though, maybe so I don't understand. <laughs> he probably wants to play it out, right? <laughs> but I don't know. What, what would you do there? Or what do you think about that? I, I would I would go with your strategy. I, when the players mm-hmm. start to get high levels, uh, especially if, if you're using any kind of wandering monster thing and you just mm-hmm. see something and if they attack you, you kill them. Because they just look at you as, oh, five, five humans that I can eat. Right. And then you just wipe them out. And then is there anything interesting on them? Uh, maybe, but probably not. They're just wandering and then they just keep moving on. So I don't, and, and part of the thing for me is I played all those battles, right? Mm-hmm. So 
even as a player, I don't necessarily, I get it. Oh, I, I now have this ability to do seven strikes per time. It might be fun to do that once in a while. Uh, but it's, it's also, I've got whatever, two hours or four hours or even six to play. I don't know if I want to spend a lot of time on a battle that's, there's almost no chance of something interesting happening, except look at my ability to do that. It can be fun, but, uh, you know, it's a time, how much time do you have? So, um, so I'm not going to run things that, uh, yes. Now, do you constantly have them on edge? Okay, I, I rolled a random monster, and I rolled two trolls. Well, the party's going to take on two trolls, so I'll make it six trolls to make it interesting. Well, uh, now i got to run six trolls for half an hour, and, and is that what we want to do? Is, or do we, are, we, are we on a mission? I roll ran into two trolls, and we just wiped them out. Let me move on. You know, I don't want to waste time with, right? right? So it, does, they all don't have to be, you can just have, oh, you wiped them out, and let's move on. Yeah, and I think actually the point, well, I don't know if the point you're making, but what I'm going to roll off of what you just said is I guess there's different situations, right? Like, so if, for instance, if I had a group of adventurers traveling through the wilderness and they were eighth level and they encountered 25 uh, orcs, I would just have them do that. But if I had like a single fighter uh, sneaking into a castle and they were surrounded by 10 guards, I'd let them play that out because I feel like that's that epic moment with Conan, right? Where he just like comes down and cuts down five of them in the first round and goes, you want some more? You know, like, I feel like at that point, <laughs> I would do it. So it kind of, it, like many things in D&D, it really kind of depends. And also, if it's important, let's say I'm going to the Orkin encampment and I meet a group of 20 or let's say 10, and, and I'm going to sneak up on it, I got to make sure I kill all 10 or right. take them prisoner, however you play your game. If one gets away and goes back and warns them, that makes a difference, right? When right. you're in the, so if you're sneaking into the castle, not only do you want to kill those guards, but you want to kill them as quietly as possible. You want them not to be able to, so you sneak up on them and stay. You know, we've seen it in a million movies. But then a, a battle that doesn't mean anything can, because if that guard manages to warn people or something, it makes a difference. So yes, it's all contextual. But right. uh, the, the idea that progression means always, well, and all the monsters are going to progress too. Again, you're, you're you're losing verisimilitude when you do that because yeah. James Bond runs into people all the time that he just wipes out. They think they're tough, but right. he you know he just takes care of them, and we and we move on until he gets to the you know the final deal. Right, and I think that's it. Right, I think part of it too is that your players should, and you should. I guess if you run more of a, a linear campaign, your players should be seeking out a higher adventure. Like if they're fifth level and they're just running around fighting uh, low level creatures like goblins they should just not be rewarded for that because that's not a challenge to them and then that should motivate the players to go do something else like I have no problem in fact AD&D tells you to do this you know if if your high level adventurers wipe out a low level creature you just say no experience for that or for their treasure you get nothing it wasn't a challenge but you've you. done it before right yeah. you've done it all before and the yeah. other thing is like we would go on hex crawl we would just wander in the wilderness right and see what mm -hmm. we could find and but you'd have all these battles that were just like meaningless, you know, oh, something, a, a bear sees you and runs off or this sees you and you know, or yeah. you, whatever that was until something interesting happened because it wasn't just to fight everything. It was what's interesting out there. Are there ruins? Are there lost this? Oh, a village that's being harassed by orcs. Oh, okay. Well, then this might be interesting. And then, you know, and then what I would always throw is a twist in that actually the village elder is conspiring with the orc, you know, something like that, that right. the players would discover as they went along. But 
but you know, just fighting battles that you are going to win anyway, and and even fighting a battle that's really tough if it doesn't have anything to, it's just because again, once you've done it, it becomes rote. You know, it just becomes. But although I had a friend, a very smart guy, he could play battles from now to eternity. He just loved to fight. He loved to see his character fight and run the roll the dice. Yeah. That's what he loved. Hey guys, Jason here. Just listened to your um, why you should split the party episode. Great episode. I actually don't really have much to add. I think you covered most of the use cases in there. I think you covered some good examples of times that you should roll saving throws for characters and you should play the charmed character for a limited amount of time. I'm a big fan of letting players play their charmed characters, but there are instances, as you mentioned there, when it makes sense for you, the GM, to do it. So great episode. Looking forward to the next one. We were brilliant as usual. Hey guys, Jason here. Just listened to Players Will Take the Hook episode. I'm a little behind in my podcast listening. Sorry about that. And I really enjoyed it. So you're saying if somebody comes into a bar with a bunch of their own whiskey that they made or, or they bought the brand and they're beating up an old man because they don't want to drink their crap whiskey, the players will probably intercede. Got it. Now, very good episode. So, some great stuff in there. Great examples. Um, especially, I, I really love, you, you know, the idea of, oh, come on, we can't get in the fight right now, Durwood. I, I really like that. That's something I'll definitely use in the future. Um, and the idea that both of you talked about, about having so much going on, the players have to decide what they're going to investigate because they can't do all the side missions. I think that's really important to make the world feel real. So, great job. Talk to you soon. Okay, that was Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. We have a lot of calls from Jason. <laughs> Jason is the most prolific caller ever. Uh, so yeah, splitting the party. I thought uh, we covered a lot of that there, so I don't have much more to add to that. No, and and again, that just the Derwin thing was, uh, their Derwood was, if you run into a, these guys get into a scuffle, NPCs, and the NPCs, one of them says, hey, don't, let's not mess with these guys, and they wander off. The players don't get into a confrontation. The players don't, but they look at that and say, oh, what's that about, right? So that's all that was. It's just giving your NPCs some impetus to, like, not, they don't want to start trouble because they've got bigger fish to fry, like the players do. Right, exactly. Everybody needs to have some kind of motivation. And and I think that whole episode was really about, there's two of them there, but about the idea that, like, you know, you just lay stuff out and the players will do what they want. And, but they'll ultimately do something. And, and if you have a group of players that literally just does nothing because they don't take any hooks, then maybe find new players, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's other, there are ways to force, you know, kidnappings or what. But yeah, right. I you're hopeful that you have a group that knows that you know there's some adventure hook. It's like well, if honestly, you're fishing and the fish aren't biting, I guess. <laughs> with your yeah, with I think too that I think too that a point maybe that I'll make is that we got to feel at your table, right? Like if you if you start a water on a sandbox or whatever you call it. And you're like, all right, I'm going to put these 10 hooks out. And like, they're just not taking anything. You might just want to have an out of game conversation and say, would you rather like a campaign where somebody hires you to do quests? Because some people do like that. It's not my thing, but some people like it. And, you know, you can run it that way. Hey, guys, Jason here. Just listen to your naturalism episode. When I think of where naturalism really took hold was when we got to Dungeon Magazine. And then, of course, later on, when you get like the Dungeon Survival Guide and the Wilderness Survival Guide. But in Dragon Magazine, where you had the Roger 
more articles like the ecology of, you know, the ecology of the beholder and stuff like that. But as far as I, I'm pretty much Daniel here. And, you, you know, I think back the old top secret modules, like, like the ones Brecken's a whatever that came with the base game where you have, you know, all the rooms are populated and the buildings are populated and stuff, but you also have potential of random encounters as you're moving around and, and the rooms will say, you know, you know, Joe Bob is in this room unless you've already encountered him, you, you know, before. And, and that kind of covers them, you know, that they're not always in the room, which I thought was a nice touch. Well, Daniel, I guess since you're right again, I should uh, let you, uh, <laughs> I don't remember what. what yeah, we no, I, I, okay, again, me being right doesn't mean you are wrong. I think he's just saying I made a statement <laughs> that he agrees with. No, I, I can't Jason, remember. Jason, if you could call in and let KR know that he's right sometimes, he'll feel a lot better. Yes, about exactly. I don't care about that. What, <laughs> no, what I'm like, saying is, uh, what, I just can't remember Well, no, I think what he's talking about, the thing that I was right about, is that um, you can do things where, like, it's if you have a random encounter, it could be something from the space. In fact, I'm reading, I don't want to say what module is now because I'm probably going to run it for my group, but it actually has at the beginning of the module the total number of different types of creatures in this space so that if you encounter, let's say, a bullywog, um, you know, you cross it off this list and there's only a total of like 15 bullywogs no matter how many, no matter where you encounter them. So if you encounter some as a wandering monster and they're all gone and you come to the bullywog lair, it'll be empty, which I think is kind of a good way to do things. Yeah, and and the idea that they that you have to have an explanation for why things is, are there, as I can't remember how, how no, <laughs> see, no, no, I can't no. remember I, the I, podcast. You know <laughs> how what side we came down. It's too long ago, but well, we usually um, talk about it a, a bunch. I mean, I always come down. I think I think I'm pretty consistent to say that I don't. Uh, what I always say is it only matters when it matters. So if the players start digging into something and they're just like, hold on, why are there no, you know, food sources for this green slime or I don't know, green slime, but you know what I'm saying then you might have to start like thinking quick on your feet and be like, oh yeah, well, you know, giant rats come through here and the green slime falls on them and eats them. But if the players don't care that there's a dragon on the 17th level of your module of your dungeon, then you don't need to have a reason. That's the way I look at it. Yeah. The other thing that I would say, I would have a long sealed tomb and I would tend to just put either put, um, uh, I'm sorry. The other thing that I was going to say, I would have a long sealed tomb. And so I would say, well, they have to be undead and constructs because what else could be there, right? There can't be just creatures, but there could be a, a crack or something into some underdark cavernous area. Right. And then things came up and are living there in some area. Now, I would also say those things, no, this area over here is taboo. This is the center of the tomb and it's haunted or whatever. But we have this other area over here that we've kind of taken over or something like that, if you want to introduce it. But really a long sealed tomb, if you've got it all set up with undead, it's probably going to be just fine. Mm -hmm. But anything yeah. that's connected to the quote unquote underdark or whatever could have things in it. Or the outside world, because things will go in there to find shelter. So you just have holes up vents or air shafts that things could climb through. 100%. I'm working doing as, the, Good. That's as much detail as you need. Yeah, and like I'm doing a Dungeon 23 uh, thing still, and I'm doing it completely random. Like I'm rolling for every, every room, but I keep adding on every level like paths that go to the surface, you know, holes, like I said, chimneys, because I want, you know, it to make a little bit of sense. So, uh, you know, that I'm kind of doing a little bit of, but uh, generally speaking, I don't worry too much about that. Yeah. Okay. The uh, next one is called Henchman. I'm just going to keep going. Hey guys, Jason here. Interesting hearing you talk about henchmen hirelings. Yeah, I've had a variety of experiences over the years, from using them as cannon fodder to, you know, having players use those 
hirelings and henchmen when their PCs die to stay in the game. I remember one game where I <laughs> died twice and I, you know, took over two different henchmen or hirelings. Um, we also, I, I, I haven't done this, but I have a buddy who's running a game where they had a dog, like you're saying, and, and one of the players actually said, if the dog dies, I'm quitting the game. So yeah, you got that. I, I won't say who that was. Um, but yeah, it's really interesting to see how people approach all those things. And I really appreciate you guys taking the time out to record these and put these out. And I'm looking forward to what you do next. So keep up the great work. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah, that's just an interesting. We talked about whether they're true hirelings in the old sense or NPCs that the players get. And uh, it's been interesting. I'm going over the hireling rules in the rules cyclopedia, which I'll have things to say about. <laughs> I'm not sure I would ever do the way they have. They have a very elaborate system, interviews and and uh, you know morale and whatnot. And uh, we we just said if you treat them well, they stay. If you treat them like crap, they leave or whatever. It didn't, I didn't need a huge number of tables to figure that out. But I can see why <laughs> they're doing that to help people with the concept. Well, I think uh, so. I do. I don't do interviews usually. I mean, I, I do it very abstractly. Again, I I'm the type of person. I guess I'm a gamist. Like, so when I do that, if they're like, we want to get some henchmen, then I'll be like, okay, well, you need to, do you want to put out some postings? It costs this much. Let me roll here. Okay. These five people showed up. This is what they look like. This is what they got. This is what they want. Okay. Uh, roll this. Boom, boom, boom. Okay. We hired them. Like, that's how I do it. I don't go through, I don't role play that part out, but I do follow the BX. And I think it's an ODND structure where when we return to safe camp, I roll a morale check for every one of the henchmen. And if they fail, they decide this isn't for me anymore. Um, so I do, I do that, uh, but I don't think you need a lot of elaborate tables. I just have my one reaction table and go from there. Yeah. And I would just have an NPC player character type. And then at the end of a campaign, if it's clear, the players are not treating them well or whatever they would leave. If they're getting yeah. rewards, if things are going good, if people treat him well or her well or whatever, then they would stay. So that, it, it, you don't, yeah. I didn't need all sorts of charts or the thing that I liked about hiring people, I will say this. I had some characters that went into, I think it was like a port city and they had to hire sailors and it was something unique to them. And they were going to do this ship thing. So these sailors came into interview and some of them were like pirate types, like scummy guys. And some were not. Mm -hmm. And then of course it gives me a chance to insert a story about, Oh yes, I was at the Emerald Island 20 years ago. You know, and that kind of thing where it, it gives you some information or somebody wants to do this. And then people hear that you're hiring sailors for what purpose why are you hiring these guys? What's going on? So there's some things you can do in terms of story hooks and things when the players have to put up a notice looking for able-bodied seamen, two-month mission, whatever it is that uh, can lead to, you know, some complications and stuff. 100%. Okay. We've got another one. Long-term games with simple rules. Here we go. Simple rules versus detailed rules. How many rules are enough? It's a complicated question. Definitely depends on the group. Um, you, you know, we've had this discussion before amongst the podcast community, the idea, could you run a long game with lasers and feelings or something like that? We, we did run a long over year long campaign using the black hack, you know, very effectively. Now, what we did do is as characters maxed out level, there was a domain game added with faction play and things like that. But the, the black hack definitely supported a, a long term game. So I, I think he can do it. Um, it would be interesting to hear what long-term games were like for people who are playing Tunnels and Trolls back in the day. 
because that at its core is a pretty simple system and you wouldn't think it would lack, you know, support long-term campaigns. So it might be interesting to hear if anybody has done that. But yeah, I think it's possible, but I definitely think it's group specific on how many rules you actually need. Have you ever played Tunnels and Trolls? No, we thought it was silly, but I don't <laughs> know why I have that. I'm sorry. I just, that's what I remember. No, like, no, no. I love it. it. I, 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 well, it. Tunnels and Trolls is something that people often tell me I should look at. Apparently it's a very, uh, it's a very simple system with D6s. Yeah, all D6. That was the thing that, because yeah. they said, oh, you don't want to have to go out and buy these crazy dice, right? Yeah. I agree with that. But I, I guess I I may have a copy. I probably have like a PDF because I think at the time we thought it was just silly. But mm-hmm. uh, that was such a great discussion because this is such a central core question of D&D in terms of how many rules, you know, how much is too much. I don't know if you remember like the role master system. Have you ever seen oh. that? <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, I've heard every, people talk about it. I've never played it. Yeah. I mean, you could hit the arm, the leg. Uh, mm-hmm. You get infection rules and things. and uh, Just crazy stuff that... It's like, really? I don't know. But but obviously somebody liked it. I think it has a hardcore core group that still plays it. But it's one of those games that has never died out, I think. But You know, so I, I, I wonder, um, so this is kind of on topic, but also off topic. I don't know if I said this before. But I wonder, too, if those people, since you were a wargamer, and I've never, again, I'm not a wargamer, so I can be completely off base, as I often am. When I watch people play war games, like at a convention, it seems like they're there's not this like rush that we have when we're playing a role-playing game. Like in a role-playing game, the story's coming, the score's coming, people don't want to sit around. People talk about it a lot of times, oh, it's slow, it's boring. But in war games, I've seen people like they're sitting around the table waiting for their turn and then something happens and the, the referee goes over and they have this little skirmish or whatever and things are happening and all the other players are fine with that. They're doing their thing. It's almost like everything's very compartmentalized. And I wonder in a game like that, if... Uh, then you, I don't know why I came in this direction. I've got, I started, but, but if it's okay, oh, though, the detailed, I wonder if in a game like that, like that's where the details are fine, right? If you're okay with being like, all right, this combat, cause people complain about four hour combats in 5e, right? But that's because generally in 5e, your combat is you move around, you have an action, you have a reaction. It's just a lot of hit points. That's why it's taking four hours. But if it took four hours because of all this detail and you were into that, would that be fun for a certain type of person? I wonder that that's, I guess what I'm getting at there. I, like I said, I think Role Master and some of these others, I can't think of them off the top of my head, but there's some legendarily complicated. And it's usually right. around, Perps. well, it's around combat and it's around mm-hmm. the spell system. But there's some that are really complicated in terms of character development and mm-hmm. skills and how you develop your character, all these variant things that you have to be thinking about. If people are into that, sure. It's just the, I think with everything with D&D, the balance. Like, so yeah. obviously the issue with no rules or very few is it's really great for just a fun one shot or whatever. But if you're going to try to run a campaign, is that enough? Is it enough to sustain as you end up are just talking about stuff all the time, as opposed to super complicated rules where, oh my God, another six hour battle. I saw, I heard, I, I saw it in 3E and I heard in 4E you used to have battles that were literally six hours. So yeah, I guess maybe what those I'm saying are not is- being played correctly. I don't know, but. Yeah, no, no. I guess what I'm saying is, uh, and I guess now as I think about my thoughts better, what I mean is like when I was talking about the war game thing, it's like because people were fine with like going off and getting a drink while somebody else was doing their little deal. Is that how you play those games? Like, is when you're sitting around a table playing something like Rollmaster, I've never played, right? And let's say that it takes, and again, I might be over exaggerating. Let's say it takes three to four minutes to to uh, deal with one single attack. Is it that, okay, that's fine, that's going on, but because we've broken down into this mechanical stage that people are fine with, like, the things people call taboo, like checking their phone or getting a drink and not paying attention, 
because it doesn't, they don't need to, right? They're not involved in that moment. They only need to know the beginning and the end. And I wonder if that mentality fits more with a wargamer. And I only say that because I see that around wargame tables where people seem to just like sometimes just walk away when it's not their turn because it doesn't really affect them, if that makes sense. Well, if you think about it, I played uh, War in the East, which is a famous, I think it's Fire in the East, a Europa game. There's many others of the German invasion of Russia. So you have thousands of counters. You're, you're, you're in charge. It's all at like a brigade level. So every turn that you take as the German player and then the Russian player takes half an hour to move all the pieces and everything. And then you have the battle. Now the Russians, there rolling. He's, he's reacting to that. He's not at some time. Then he has to retreat when he has loses a battle. So once the battles start, but in that movement segment, you've got 15, 20 minutes where you can do whatever you want as the Russian. You might be wanting to watch, right. but, and there's like take, if you have a player that's not familiar, whatever, 45 minutes or I mean, it can be a really long time. Now what they did to, there was a famous world war one game where while the allies are moving in the West, the Germans are moving in the East. And then when the Russians move in the East, the Germans move in the West. So you're both doing your turns at the same time. And so that the oh. idea was we didn't want to have these eight hour. I mean, but again, those games, yes, you have to be able to sit there and watch someone move their pieces for 30 minutes. Right. Right. So I wonder if like, and, so, so I wonder if you have that mentality or that, that ability to do that, like a war gamer might, then a complicated game might work better for you. Whereas like, if you're more, you're just story forward. Like you just care about what's going on with my character. I want to role play them. Maybe you don't want to take a long time mechanically. Like, I think that's, and obviously there's a big spectrum in the middle, but yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. The, the rules thing is a fascinating uh, yeah. thing. It's real. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. That could go on for a long time. So we'll, we'll go yeah. to what is uh, actually the final call from Jason wrapping it up. Hey guys, Jason here. Just want to say, enjoyed your reminiscing about Gen Con. Yeah. I'd love to get out there one of these years. Who knows? I, I didn't even make the conventions I was supposed to make this year. So who knows if I'll make any next year. Um, hopefully that cop isn't going to turn around and pull me over. Um, anyway, that's not the point. The point is I definitely design the convention games I run, although lately it's all been online conventions I've run them in. But I definitely design those adventures for conventions. Like the Boot Hill adventure that Daniel got to play in, it was specifically designed to create characters, to show off gambling, to show off, unarmed combat and to show off gun combat so people can see how the game works and all the systems like a teaching game but with a scenario built around it and i do that with barbarians and lamori as well so although i usually use pregens for that anyway great episode looking forward to the next one obviously he was talking about the gary con thing he yep. said gen con at the beginning but yeah that was such a great thing and i've had so many thoughts about like running a boot hill thing because i that was one of the funnest things i ever ran and it reminded me when you ran your walking dead because boot hill if you've got a setup and you've got the characters coming into town and they have to maybe get something or whatever and you've got the buildings there and the little figures that can be really fun because i ran one years ago at conventions and it was always fun there was a guy that did it every time it was the same thing he did every time so after a while i stopped yeah. doing it but so um Having a convention-based game is is it's a unique thing. It's fun, and and as you said, from your experience of doing these, you learned how to do it as you went along. Yeah, I think running a game, whether it be a role-play game or or a miniatures game, at a convention is a different thing. I think you've got your campaign, you got one shots, and you got convention games, and I think they are different games that I have thought would be great, you know, because they were one shots. You know, that played in, or you know, I'm like, oh, I've heard this module is really good, and you play at a convention, it's just not the same. 
Like there's just too much of the time pressure, I guess. Although I've never played in a tournament, so maybe that's interesting. But on the Boot Hill note, I'm running Boot Hill at Gen Con this year. So we'll see. I, I have my miniatures. They're, uh, they're being painted. So we'll see how that works out. <laughs> Who's, is someone painting them for you? No, I'm doing it, and we'll see how that works. Okay, out. Yeah. you're actually like, you know, Daniel's got such he's such a big wheel now. He has yeah. people painting my figures. I have to inspect well, them, of course. In well, the it's end. very funny. I don't know. Maybe you played in it. I'm running the good, the bad, and the orcish, where you're a bunch of orcs trying to get some cattle to town, but the evil dwarves are trying to stop you. So I got uh, seven two scale miniatures for the orcs, and I got fifteen millimeter for the dwarves. So they're they're like little because you get the different scale. So it's really funny. I mean, right. we'll see how it works out. Little tiny well, the one that uh, that I like, uh, the Boss Hog one. Yeah, was that was fun. the one you played it, yeah. And, uh, uh, but anyway, that'll be fun. I'm, I'll have to sign up. Uh, yeah. I'm pretty sure I'm going to be going to Gen Con, so I will sign up for that. Yeah, let's hope we can get uh, Jason at some con next year. Jason, I, I, I tell me which one you're going to, because I'm, I'm just trying to hit a lot of cons next year. That's my plan. I'm trying to become a con guy. It's really fun just meeting all the different people and uh, just interacting and seeing the, the different... And I feel like each con has its own like culture, for lack of a better word. That's really interesting, right? And so Gary Con's very specific compared to Gen Con, compared to like Shire Con I've been to. And uh, I need to hit uh, North Texas. That's the one people keep telling me to go to. Yeah, I, I went to Grand Con here in Grand Rapids, and it was very small. But it had the same sort of uh, vibe as all the big space area where people were playing games. And, you know, it's just low. And I saw some YouTubers there that are clearly from the Michigan area, this one guy that I can't, of course, now I can't think of his name, but uh, he used to wear the, or he still does wear like face paint. And it's, oh, uh, uh, DM's Lair, Luke. DM's Lair, Luke from DM's yeah. Lair I saw at the Grand Con. So that oh, was interesting. Cool. He was also at Gary Con, although I did not get to see him. Yep. So, I talked uh, to yeah, him, I you were busy him. with your fans, as I remember. <laughs> <laughs> I, I Daniel's holding court. <laughs> I'm over there interacting. <laughs> that wasn't the case, folks. No, not at all. KR was holding court. Oh, yeah. So, uh, anyways, that was a very long uh, call-in show. Sorry for uh, taking so long to get to these. We now are going to try to do them more often because clearly they build up really quickly. Thank you, Jason uh, from Nerds RPG Variety Cast, BJ from the Arcane Alienist. If you guys want to reach us, all the information is in the show notes, which we probably say at the closure, which we're going to put on the end of this, so I don't know why I'm doing it. <laughs> All right. And I say the same. I love to hear people call in. You love to have that interaction that people are actually listening to this out there. So thank mm -hmm. you so much for taking the time to call in. If you join my Discord server, there there is a Monsters and Treasures room and conversations sometimes pick up over there about these subjects too. Those we seem to get to more readily because I can Im immediately answer them on the Discord versus uh, the calls, which somehow build up and uh, we don't get to. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear your voice on the show, give us a call. There's a link in the show notes. You can find us both on YouTube, KR at D&D Homebrew, and myself at Bandits Keep. Those are all linked in the show notes. And if you'd like to support the show, please give us a rating and a review on your favorite podcatcher. We'll see you next week.